and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an explosive story erupting in Turkey that exposes how right-wing demagogues like Trump and Bolsonaro destroy civic and government institutions in order to gain more power and enrich themselves. But no other example is as stark as what is happening to Turkey under Erdogan. But now a reckoning is underway with a mafia boss turned whistleblower who is releasing videos, seven so far, revealing all the dirt about Erdogan, his corrupt family and his crooked inner circle, which has the Turkish people appalled and enthralled as they learn that their leader is the boss of the mafia bosses who gets the biggest cut of the proceeds from crime, in particular the drug trade, which explains why Erdogan is close to Maduro in Venezuela, from where tons of cocaine are shipped to Turkey, then on to Europe. Joining us to explain the exposure of this mega-criminal and wannabe dictator who is now speechless in the face of a torrent of damning evidence is Ahmet Yela, a professor at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and a fellow in the program on extremism at George Washington University who was formerly a counter-terrorism police chief in Turkey. Then, on this anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, we will speak with Echo Yanka a professor of law at the Cardoza School of Law who serves on the board of the Innocence Project and is the author of A Paradox in Overcriminalization. He joins us to discuss the possibility of police reform which is stalled in a partisan standoff in Washington with Republicans invested in the false equivalence that Black Lives Matter needs to be investigated as much as the white supremacists who stormed the Capitol on January the 6th. Then finally we'll go to the scene of the crime and examine further where race relations and police reform stand one year after the murder of George Floyd with over-policing and under-protecting still prevalent in black communities. And with 1,126 killed by police last year, just as many police killings are happening this year. David Schultz a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law, joins us to discuss his article at the Minnesota Journal of Law and Inequality, How We Got Here, The Road to George Floyd. And joining us now is Ahmet Yela, who's a professor at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and a fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. He formerly served as a professor and a chair of the Sociology Department at Haran University in Turkey and was a counter-terrorism police chief in Turkey. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ahmet Yela. Thank you for your invitation, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us. And Turkey is now being rocked by a scandal that reminds me of a of a really interesting Turkish TV show that I've been watching on Netflix called Black Money Love, which is about a mafia boss. And this character, Sedar Pekker, is a mafia boss who's making explosive allegations against the Erdogan government, naming names, in particular high-ranking officials in the cabinet, including the Minister of Interior, who has oversight over organized crime. So fill us in on what's happening here, Ahmed. So Sedat Pekyar is a known mafia boss and he has been um, in close connections uh, with the Erdogan government. In fact, he has a lot of pictures with the high-level government officials that are very close to Erdogan. He was released from prison like many other mafia bosses um, in Turkey. 
Uh, after particularly 17-25 December 2013 corruption operations against Erdogan's close circles, including his son, his minister's son, and three of his ministers. So since then, Erdogan has this policy of <coughs> establishing <coughs> excuse me, close connections to these types of uh, personalities to kind of find new alliances to stay in power. So that's like part of the game. At, at least that was part of the game for Erdogan after those corruption operations against himself, his son and his close circles. So this mafia boss, where is he now? Because he's releasing videos that are absolutely explosive. And my understanding, it's it's got the entire nation glued to their TVs, has it not? Oh yeah, he has been, in Turkey at least, at IMDB number one. <laughs> he is rocking uh, the YouTube uh, ratings. Looks like he is in Dubai. He is broadcasting or recording those videos from Dubai. Right. Well, he'd be dead if he was in Turkey, wouldn't he? Of, uh, of course. At least he was going to be arrested. But um, he's not stupid. He has been there. So he understands how these games are played. But isn't he making the claim that Turkey is a major narco state? Yes, unfortunately, this became a reality under Erdogan. Um, and in fact, like one of the issues that he was addressing, the fact that Erdogan's former prime minister, Binali Yildirim's son, went to Venezuela to deal uh, with these issues. And like if we go back and look at the big picture, maybe we can better understand why Erdogan was very close with the Venezuelan president. Like the whole world turned their back against Maduro and Erdogan was very close with him. Uh, but looks like the connections and the movements kind of click in. So there is something to look at there. And most probably the DA is working very hard to connect those dots now. Well, yeah, drugs or cocaine in particular used to be shipped from Colombia to Turkey to go into the Europe. But mm -hmm. now it's been coming through from Venezuela yes. into Turkey to be distributed throughout the Middle East and in Europe. In Europe, yes. And there has been a few operations. There were ships that were confiscated um, in different countries. They were uh, going to Turkey. So, like, there is enough evidence to back these claims. So, Erdogan's already in political trouble, isn't he, because of the economy, because of the lira has been devalued? He is in deep trouble. People do not trust him anymore. He lost the support of the majority of the Turks. His support is less than 40%, and he knows that if he goes to uh, an election, he's not going to be able to win those elections. So he feels deeply troubled, and he cannot find a way out. And again, I'm speaking with Ahmet Yela, who's a professor in the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and a fellow at the program on extremism at George Washington University. He formerly served as a professor and the chair of the sociology department at Haran University in Turkey and was a counterterrorism police chief in Turkey. But these allegations from this mafia boss that have got 
Turks glued to their TV and their social media. Uh, is it penetrating the AKP base, the base that still supports uh, Erdogan, largely in the countryside? We know he it lost is. in the city elections rather mm -hmm. badly recently. Yes, it is certainly penetrating into the new generations, including Generation Z, or at least we can tell people who read uh, and who are on the social media, they are extensively following these posts and people are discussing about this. Sedat Pekers, the Mafia Bosses uh, webpage, uh, our Twitter account has been gaining a lot of followers. His videos are watched at millions, like two, three, uh, five million times, five million times. So people are watching and they are judging and they can understand very well what is going on because they are familiar with these um, allegations. Therefore, it is hurting Erdogan further and people see that behind the scenes they were dealing with these criminals. And when they connect the dots in terms of the, how these mafia bosses were released from prison, everything become more obvious. Uh, yes, Sedat Peker is rocking the boat of Erdogan in Turkey right now. And Erdogan has been mum. He has not said anything yet. I think he's trying to figure out how he needs to handle uh, this problem. So tell us, Ahmed, Yela, how many mafia bosses have been released from prison by Erdogan and, uh, and are the people or were the people suspicious of it when it happened? So like the number one mafia boss that was released from prison, who was also a very close ally of Erdogan's coalition partner, Alatin Çakıcı. These people have been known with their crimes, including murders, and under normal circumstances, it was impossible to release, for example, Alatin Çakıcı. But this was done in front of everybody's eyes. And in fact, it was done regardless of the fact that Alatin Çakıcı was against Erdogan and he wrote letters threatening him in the past. So, like, even by just looking at the name of Alatin Çakıcı and how he was released from prison has brought a lot of questions to the uh, Turkish public. And the people who understand these types of dealings questioned it extensively. Uh, so that's hurting Erdogan's space. Alatin Çakıcı is known to be close to MHP and he, its leader, Turkish Ultranationalist Party, uh, and its leader, Devlet Bahçeli. Uh, so they have been giving pictures together uh, for a long time. That's the biggest example. And Erdogan was uh, planning to use Alatin Çakıcı against Sadat Pekar, but it backfired. So... He is, Sedat Pekker has released seven videos as of today, right? Yes. Uh, so is he saving the best for last? <laughs> <laughs> so what we need to understand from the perspective of the government and how things are run within the AKP government, Erdogan is the boss. So nothing can be done unless Erdogan has his cut. Meaning if the Minister of Interior getting his cut from Sedat Pekker, Erdogan is getting a bigger cut. And this was all about uh, covering up the corruption operations uh, of 17 and 25 December 2003. So Erdogan knows that Pekar might have uh, evidence against him. 
that might be the reason he is mum and he is not uh, speaking about um, this issue. But what we know, at least what we can say is, if there is money to make, Erdogan is there and he gets the lion's share. So most probably Pekar is saving the biggest evidence to the last. But doesn't that mean, Ahmed, that Erdogan is is the mafia bosses of the mafia bosses? He is the mafia boss within the government. <laughs> right. He is the master thief. I can tell you that. And his son has be, always been associated with corruption, hasn't he? Is the son the bag man? You know, he is not that clever. Oh, if you really? go back to <laughs> yeah, he cannot handle these issues. If you go back to seventeen. 25 December corruption uh, operations, there is a phone call leaked to uh, YouTube. In that phone call, Bilal Erdogan, his son's name, is asking his father what to do with the cash. Apparently, they had over $1 billion in cash in Erdogan's Istanbul villa, among uh, some, seven, I think, 20 or 30 million uh, euros in cash. So eventually, over a day, they brought in three trucks to hide that much uh, money in cash. But Bilal was like so stupidly asking questions to his father. After that phone conversation, there is a new term in Turkey that people say, explain it as if you are talking to Bilal. <laughs> <laughs> so Bilal is just... Um, like a window dressing. But we, we should understand, Erdogan family has been like this for a long time. They have purchased ISIS oil in front of the whole world's eye and sold that oil to the whole world as Turkish oil. Right, the ISIS oil that they sold. Yes, that they yes. sold it to Russia, didn't they? No, they sold it to Europe, Israel and other countries. Oh, really? Huh. Yes, yes. Huh. So... But you were just telling us that the idiot son of Erdogan was caught on a phone call asking what to do with a billion dollars in cash, in U.S. dollars, and saying that it required three trucks to move the money? So at that morning when the operation started, Erdogan was in Konya with his daughters, with his daughter, Sumeyye. Bilal was in Istanbul. So Erdogan heard about the operations and the first thing he did was to call his son Bilal. He was at his villa and he asked his son to hide the money, to get rid of the money. But Bilal was so shocked and couldn't kind of acknowledge what to do and kept asking a lot of stupid questions. So Erdogan was so fed up, he asked his daughter who was with him in Konya, like 500, 600 miles away to go back to Istanbul ASAP and to handle the issue. So huh. <laughs> think about it. He sent his daughter to um, handle the problem at hand because his son was right. not... The problem, the problem of a billion dollars in cash. That's some, yeah, some yes, problem yes. to have, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I was, I've always disliked Erdogan because of his politics and because he's anti-democratic and he's one of these dictators like the ones that are undermining democracy like in, you know, in Hungary and, and of course, long ago it was destroyed in Russia. But Turkey has definitely suffered under Erdogan in terms of 
the press freedom and journalists have been jailed and opposition have been purged and he's used the Gulanists as an excuse and of course the aborted coup against him played right mm -hmm. into his hands so he's just a terrible guy but I had no idea how incredibly corrupt he is and that he's in charge of the mafia and in massive amounts of drug dealings of tons of cocaine coming from Venezuela into Europe through Turkey. I mean, this is the mind-boggling part of it, that this, it this is. mafia boss is brought to the table, surely. It is, like, and there are other uh, like angles of the story. For example, Erdogan has been dealing very closely in, in Libya. In fact, the current Libyan prime minister um, is very close to Erdogan. And I read that, I have read that the Turkish government is purchasing scrap metal from Libya. Uh, like the, the first question that comes into my mind as a former police chief, what are they bringing from Libya inside those scrap metal cargo, you know, right. shipments? So what's going on? Clearly, they would not spend a lot of money to bring in scrap metal from Libya. Why Libya? Um, Erdogan has been this way particularly for the last uh, 12 years. And he has been firing and imprisoning his opposition. But his real face was shown to the public after those corruption operations against him and his close circles, including his son. And since then, he has been firing and imprisoning um, honest people. Thousands of people lost their jobs. They are still in prison. He started to label them as Gulenists and started to imprison them. So basically, by either labeling people as Gulenists or Kurdish, he has been oppressing his opposition inside or outside Turkey. And he tried to sell to the public that people were behind him because they were either Gulenists or Kurdish because he was working for the good of the Turkish people. But now people started to realize for the last at least two years that he was lying. However, it takes time. Erdogan has con uh, is now controlling the whole military and the Turkish national intelligence. Uh, so therefore, even if, for example, Turkey goes to elections today, he is going to find a way to win those elections. There is a new term in Turkish, again, thanks to Erdogan and his dirty games during the time of the election, all of a sudden, for example, some bigger cities lost their power. And one of the ministers came out, the minister of energy, and explained that there was a cat that went into uh, the power generator's main room. And essentially, because of that cat, the power was shut down. So he's going to find ways to, fin to win those elections. He's not going to leave the power because he knows that the moment he loses the elections and leaves the power, he is going to be prosecuted from his crimes against humanity. So his corruption is under his crimes against humanity. Think about the thousands of people who lost their lives because of his crimes against humanity, beginning from uh, like letting ISIS foreign fighters to go through Turkey, imprisoning hundreds of thousands of people, purging and firing again over 250,000 people and of course the corruption wow 
It's quite a ledger. I thank you very much for joining us here today, Ahmed Yella. Sure. Thank you for your invitation. Have a great day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Ahmed Yella, who's a professor at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and a fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. He formerly served as a professor and the chair of the sociology department at Haran University in Turkey and was a counterterrorism police chief in Turkey. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back on this anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, looking into how much the Republicans are invested in the false equivalence that Black Lives Matter needs to be investigated as much as the white supremacist who stormed the Capitol on January the 6th. Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Echo Yanka, who's a professor of law at the Cardoza School of Law. He also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter, and his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality, and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Echo Yanka. Well, thanks for joining us, Echo. And a year after the murder of George Floyd, which we all saw on camera, we saw literally saw a man die before our eyes. A year later, the issues that plague African American communities in this country of over policing and under protecting are they still persisting? Are we any better off a year later? I think the only thing that's better off is that these concepts that seemed abstract or academic, I think are now visceral to people. Um, when, when scholars or activists used to say black communities have too many police and not the right police, that sounded like you were trying to be um, clever. But now people have seen what it means to have too many police that are not focused on the health of your community, that are focused on policing black people. Um, in ways that would never be tolerated elsewhere. If there's one other good thing, um, we, we had a summer of not just protest and attention, but strikingly a broad interracial coalition of protests. And I think that gave us the seeds of something that could actually make things better. Uh, the question, of course, is how robust and how determined will that coalition be going forward? Well, unfortunately, that coalition is being vilified by former President Trump, who essentially controls the GOP. And, for example, the efforts to have a bipartisan commission looking into what happened in the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th 
has been stymied because the Republicans want to make the false equivalents of Black Lives Matter and the white supremacists who stormed the Capitol. So they're vilifying the very constituency that you're saying is an improvement. Yeah, no, there's no question. And look, I mean, I think one of the things that, frankly, black Americans have known for a long time is that what counts as patriotism seems to be entirely colored by your skin. So when black athletes kneel peacefully, they're considered traitors to the flag. But we have an entire political party that has literally ignored the police officers they tell us they revere so much when those police officers put their lives on their line literally to save them, literally to save them. So that level of cynicism doesn't surprise me so much. Um, I think the question is not looking at the Republican Party and what they'll do. Coalitions that are going to be successful have to be bigger than any political party. To me, the disappointment has been watching the ebbing and, and just erosion and I don't want to say boredom, but the way in which once it's not on the national news, once it's not the focus of attention, once it's not the hip thing to do, we have seen steady erosion of, frankly, white support for Black Lives Matter and for police reform. And unless we have a more robust, frankly, more dedicated set of people who are going to be uh, aiming for reform, um, it'll never get done by trendy movements. Well, the one issue that we were told that is the most likely to succeed in terms of Biden's ambitious agenda and the one that the Republicans are most likely to agree with has been police reform. You know, everything else like reforming the elections and even the infrastructure package, they're pretty well stalled. But they're getting nowhere that Biden is on the one area where we're supposed to have a chance of bipartisanship. So it's not looking good. Yeah, and we have three key um, political figures, uh, Senator Booker, Senator Scott, and um, Representative Demings are, as far as we can tell from the outside, locked in a room, uh, putting their heads together. Um, you know, we get these reports of dribs and drabs. Occasionally they say they're making progress, um, and occasionally they say not. Um, and look, I think, you know, I hold two conflicting thoughts on this. On the one hand, there's no question that President Biden was put into office by a broad multiracial coalition and wouldn't be there if it weren't for this. And that it really matters um, that he delivers on things that matter to every American, but particularly to black Americans, brown Americans. Um, and I think the political constituency that put him there have, have a right to demand that he do as much as he can, be as active on this issue as he has been on his infrastructure bill. I mean, he's been remarkably hands-off here. That being said, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Ultimately, policing is just the archetypal local power. And so our fixation on the White House and its ability to install best practices might matter. But ultimately, this is a reform set of reforms and a battle that has to be waged mayor by mayor, police chief by police chief, governor by governor. This is something that every citizen has to not look to D.C., but look inward and say, what can I do in my town to make policing fairer here?
And again, I'm speaking with Echo Yanka, who is a professor of law at the Cardoza School of Law. He is also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter. And his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. But still, we've had just as many African Americans killed this year as were last year. There's 89 so far this year. Last year's death count by police killing was 1,126. So we're heading towards that this year and 30% of that count came from basically traffic stops, mental health or wellness checks or domestic disturbances in some other non-violent offences that then escalate into the death and according to some of the data from mapping police violence 80% of all of those incidents were the victims were allegedly armed so that's the statistics we have but I heard an interesting interview a couple of days ago, just a little bit of it, I didn't get the whole thing, but it was with Chief Bratton, who used to be the Chief of Police in New York and also here in Los Angeles, and he was asked about how come there are so many police killings in the United States compared to the UK, where every year in the UK it's just in, in single digits, the number of police killings, whereas here, as I say, last year was 1,126. And he said, because you can't equate British policing with American policing because there are so many guns in America that the police are therefore always assuming that the people they're facing are armed. So it led me to think, well, why in the hell aren't the police in this country against the NRA? What's going on? I completely agree with you. Look, I mean, part of it is that our police are trained to assume that in any situation they can be killed. And this is wildly out of proportion with the actual danger they face. I'm sympathetic and I work with police officers. I work with police chiefs. I understand it's a dangerous job. It's not like most of our jobs. Um, and I'm hugely supportive of police officers, but our training has to be much, much better. We also frankly have to choose police officers better. I mean, with, you know, with as many great police officers as I've worked with, it's also true. And they'll tell you too many police officers are chosen from people who want to be um, the tough guy on, who, who think their jobs is busting heads and bringing order, um, and who are just steeped in a cynical view that it's all wolves and sheep out there. With all that being said, look, fundamentally, we're not going to be able to reform policing until we solve some of the root causes of these problems, some of the root causes of why people are in distress, until we reform the way we police. And yes, until we take a look at what it means to police a country that's awash in guns, um, and, and to me, it's just ridiculous that we've made this the, the worst form of our culture war. 90% of sensible people can understand that, look, maybe you think slightly this way, I think that way. We have a reasonable range of disagreement. And somehow we have made uh, the most extreme positions on gun ownership a cultural marker of some sort of uh, political freedom. And it is deeply unhealthy and it's knocked down effects show up in the deaths of black and brown people and frankly we shouldn't be shy to say in untold deaths of all americans white americans by police by suicide by school shootings the idea that we've allowed this to become um just such cultural kabuki theater is is unbelievable 
So why not have social workers do ride-alongs? I know there's been some talk about it, but if, you, if you're coming to an, a situation, and I read those statistics about at least 30% of the police killings start from mental health or wellness checks. So if that's the case, when you know you're going to somebody that is a street person or is, uh, is unstable, why not have the professionals, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists lead and you, the cops, can be there as backup instead of the other way around? I entirely agree. Look, we know it's not easy, right? There are lots of complicated things that are happening when we're walking on the streets and seeing people in distress. But the core answer is precisely the thing you touch upon. How many times have you seen somebody who's homeless or who's intoxicated or who looks like they're having a mental health issue and you want to help them and you're staring at your phone and you know the right people to call are not the police, right? This is not a policing situation. But in this country, we just haven't used our imagination to think of some other way to help. So too many citizens feel caught, right? Do you dial 911, in which case things can get violent and out of hand, or do you walk by this person and leave them to their own resources, in which case they could be harmed in other ways or harm somebody else, right? So, you know, I don't pretend I know exactly what the answer is, but surely the answer is to have a set of social responses that fit the problem. A phone call you can call for somebody who's homeless and in distress, and maybe there's a safety officer with that person, a police officer. A home call, a phone call for somebody who's in mental health distress. These are things we would be reimagining if we cared as much about policing the most vulnerable communities as we care about policing our the wealthy, well-resourced communities. So, on this first anniversary of. The murder of George Floyd. Is there anything that we've been talking about so far in these terms of these issues that one are, be, are being addressed? What do you know, Echo, about what the Biden administration is planning? Now, you know, I mentioned earlier that it's pretty much stalled. I frankly don't think it's going to go anywhere because the Republicans are so heavily invested in the big lie and heavily invested in the idea that what happened on January the 6th was actually the storming of the Capitol by Antifa. I mean, they literally believe that. Uh, That's something like 54% of Republicans. And 87% of Republicans think that there was fraud in the last election, and 7 out of 10 believe that Trump should be the president. So there, Trump, of course, is the racist-in-chief. He's using racism, in effect, to whip his followers into line and keep them behind him. So I, it seems like they're totally invested in this alternative reality that somehow Black Lives Matter is the problem, not white supremacy. So I don't see how there's ever going to be any progress in terms of bipartisan effort at police reform. But to tell me I'm wrong, but just in the last few minutes, what is on the agenda that you know about in terms of pr- practical proposals? Yeah, I, look, I, I think it's hard and it's easy to lose hope. Um, you know, if you ask me, If you purposely prompt me to be optimistic, here's what I would say. Um, In the end, though it seems so far away, these laws are made by people. Um, And in the end, it matters that the Republicans and Democrats, the Republican and Democrats who are leading this um, reform bill in D.C. seem to have a real working relationship, 
even a genuine friendship and trust for each other. I think it matters that there'll be a sustained pressure that even Republicans, if given a police bill, um, they'll they'll have to face their constituents. And if their constituents aren't hugely sympathetic, their constituents still watch that heartbreaking almost 10 minutes of George Floyd being killed. And, and I'm hoping that really does have meaning and push. But the other thing I would say is, look, I think at the end of the day, one of the things that Black Lives Matter is trying to do, that black activists are trying to do, that police reformers are trying to do, is to make sure people understand that making policing better for black people is also something deeply important for everybody. That is, it will help white communities as well. We oughtn't just think of bad policing as a black problem. It's disproportionately affects black people. But when you think of healthy, well-developed, flourishing towns, you don't think of oppressive policing. And that oppressive policing ultimately affects and, and oppresses white and black communities alike. At the same time, I think white people need to understand that reform is not a trend. It is not something that you do when it feels good. It's not something that comes up one summer when it's popular. Um, and white people who view themselves as of good faith and dedicated to justice have to understand that this is going to take a committed, sober, and consistent effort going forward. One that does not wane when the season turns colder. Um, and if we can get that, if we can get the kind of sobriety and real consistency that it takes to reform policing state by state, city by city, then slowly and surely, slowly and surely there can be better days ahead. And of course, we haven't even got into the larger issue of improving conditions in these neighborhoods like housing, job opportunities, etc., which, of course, is a massive part of the uh, problem. But I thank you for joining us. I'm sorry we ran out of time, but appreciate your time uh, here today. Echo Yanka. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Echo Yanka, who is a professor of law at the Cardoso School of Law, and he serves also on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter. And his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality, and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining further where race relations and police reform stand a year after the murder of George Floyd. Shell like a bell and run the blood burst body temperature fell and plunged and in the time it took the medics to come the breath eased out of his lungs and the soul uh, and some might say that it's a waste of time Cause ain't no amount of dancing finna break the bondage We go to war and transcend space and time When every record ain't a record just to shake behind You know the stakes is high, we in the face of drama That's why we can't shake it or escape the problem It's like a game of roulette, the bar revolving They only wanna see us occupying a coffin Mothers crying too often from they lost child leaving From 
trying to get over, get under, get even, get inside, get into getting dumb, getting greedy. We got to get it right, it's not about to be easy. Come on, that's to pull your goggles up, it's about to Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Schultz, who's a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He's the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election, law, and the media. And most recently, American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. And he has an article at the Minnesota Journal of Law and Inequality, How We Got Here, The Road to George Floyd. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Schultz. Thank you very much for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us, and we've spoken to you before, of course, since you live in the area where George Floyd was murdered, and now, of course, it's one year since that horrible event that we all saw live on television, a man dying before our eyes. It's still hard to get over it. Where do you think we stand now? How does, it, how does the community there in Hennepin County, what's the reading today? Well, the reading today is both with hope and with, I would say at the same time, a sense of um, fear and trepidation. What I mean by hope is I think there's still hope um, that possibly out of his death, we can achieve a meaningful reform of policing and addressing some of the, um, the problems around racism and policing in America. But the trepidation is the fact that in the state of Minnesota, for example, um, legislation to try to reform policing is largely trapped um, by partisan politics in Minnesota and probably not going to pass. And as we know, at the national level, um, legislation, you know, you know, regarding police reform is is meeting a similar fate. And so, what I think there is a worry is that on one level, um, perhaps um, George Floyd's death is all for naught. And what I mean is that that this became with his death um, and the trial and the conviction of Derek Chauvin, um, perhaps another. I don't know, transformational point on race in American politics that could have taken us in a couple of different directions. And I think for some, there's a hope that we can still see change, but for some, that has that moment already passed. Did the conviction of uh, Derek Chauvin for murder prove that what? That we don't need to make bigger reforms in policing. It was just one bad cop. Um, or does the conviction prove that we still have a lot of work to go? Thus, capturing that kind of what ambivalent, um, um, mixed feeling in Hennepin County right now. Well, you mentioned uh, paralysis at the national level on police reform, and curiously enough, or sadly enough, apparently police reform is the one bipartisan issue that Biden has the best chance with. I mean, we know the infrastructure bill is likely to be stalled as everything else because of McConnell, etc. Then, of course, there's no bipartisanship on election reform and stopping the photo suppression and gerrymandering that's going on now. So that's pretty sad, isn't it, that the one possibility of bipartisanship is looking so bad. It is. You're absolutely correct. And I still don't think that the prospects for that are great. Or if they are, if something is going to pass, 
it's probably not going to be anywhere near um, the scope or depth of reform that I think advocates want. Because for Biden to be able to get this through, um, he's got to worry about the filibuster at this point, um, which means he's going to have to get um, legislation um, either watered down enough um, or or to a level that appeases Republicans to be willing to go along um, with, with whatever changes there are. And so I think you're going to probably see you know, you know, some small tinkering along the edges. Um, I know some of the biggest stuff that reformers want has to do with also um, addressing issues of qualified immunity for police officers. I'm not sure how far any legislation is going to go in terms of those areas. And so, so even if this does pass, and, and I'm still skeptical that it's going to, uh, it's probably going to fall far short of what many people are hoping in terms of of addressing what they consider to be police reform or the underlying problems of police and racism in our society. Well, it seems unlikely that the Republicans are going to cooperate because they are turning Black Lives Matter into the false equivalents of those white supremacists who stormed the Capitol on January the 6th. That's their new narrative, and that's their excuse for not going along with this bipartisan commission investigating what happened on January the 6th. So they've they've dug in with this kind of false equivalence, haven't they? And that's their strategy. And, you know, I wonder whether we should not be looking at this whole thing in, in the broader light of who's racist in this country and reactionary and who's trying to you know, bring about racial healing and inclusion in our society. I don't know what the fit, the numbers are. Do you have any idea? I, I, I don't, but you're raising a good point here is because clearly one of the reasons why the January 6th commission proposal is stalled is exactly for the reason that you point out is that McConnell and others um, are saying that, well, listen, unless we specifically investigate um, Black Lives Matters, and I think what they're even saying, Black Lives Matters role in, in, in January 6th, we're not going to go along with any of this. Now, not only is it a false equivalence, but unless I missed something along the line, um, it didn't look like the people on January 6th look like they were members of Black Lives Matters. Um, now, maybe you, saw, unless you saw something that I didn't see. Um, um, but, but the point being here is that you're right, they're creating a false narrative. I mean, the language that they were using to describe what happened on January 6th, on the night of January 6th, you know, like the Lindsey Grahams and so forth, is very different than it is now. It's an amnesia, it's a denial, um, but all points to the fact that they're digging in on that. They're digging in on just about every issue um, that Biden wants to move. And in some sense, what? This is still the Trump agenda. It is still using race and racism uh, as a as a political motivating tool to keep the base whipped um, frenzy whipped up in support. And so being able to run against police reform, running against um, a January 6th commission, um, I think there's probably many who are still um, running against George Floyd. I know in the state of Minnesota, if you get beyond the Twin Cities, there's a lot of people in some of the, what we call greater Minnesota, the rural area, who, st- who still think that um, Derek Chauvin was was falsely accused and falsely convicted and did nothing wrong. 
And again, I'm speaking with David Schultz, who's a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He's the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media, and most recently, American politics in the age of ignorance, why lawmakers choose belief over research. And he has an article at the Minnesota Journal of Law and Inequality, How We Got Here, The Road to George Floyd. So just back if you will, at the street level in this country. David, on this first anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, there hasn't been any change in the number of police killings in this country. And the basically this horrible phenomenon of fatal encounters with the police in the United States, still today, on an average, three people per day have been killed this year, which is on a par with last year's daily average. So a year later, and the number of people that police kill uh, is just as high as ever. Yeah, you're right. The curve has fundamentally not been changed. You're right. If we were to look at a year before George Floyd, George Floyd, and a year later, um, we're looking at a line that has not changed. And in fact, um, during the trial, during the time that George Floyd's killer was on trial, Derek Chauvin, um, we had what locally, um, you know, an- you know, another you know major killing by a police officer, you know, just a couple of miles away, you know, in you know in Bro- you know in Brooklyn Center. Um, and Dante Wright, um, I don't see anything has fundamentally changed um, in terms of policing in America. I mean, in Minnesota, what is it, last year, we banned chokeholds. Well, um, that's most police districts or police departments weren't using chokeholds to start with, getting rid of them. Okay, it gets rid of one bad procedure, but it still doesn't, you know, it's more, it doesn't get rid of the more fundamental stuff. It was kind of superficial reform. But you're right, at the end of the day, we've really not moved the needle significantly in terms of changing our approach to policing or to law and order issues in America. And what's making Minneapolis even tougher is the fact at the same time there's demands to reform police, there is a um, basically a record homicide um, um, rate um, and violent crime rate in Minneapolis, which is pushing for sort of um, in a counter direction for hiring more police officers, for, for cracking down even harder. So these, these conflicts um, that are coming together at the same time that are making it difficult to form a, a united front um, what it is in terms of trying to address the issue of uh, police and racism. And the fact that Minneapolis had to pay out $27 million to the George Floyd family, that hasn't acted as a deterrent? That hasn't sort of been a wake-up call for government officials? That I mean, isn't that the point of, of, of these settlements? It's not just blood money. It's an effort to bring about reform or to spur reform, isn't it? It's supposed to be. But in some of the research I did recently, which looked at how you know, in the last decade, only among 15 cities we did, we couldn't do all the cities in the United States, we had paid out as taxpayers $2.6 billion plus um, in terms of um, police police abuses of force. What, what, what I've come to the conclusion is that for cities, 
paying out um, for police abuses has become a cost of doing business. That instead of bringing about reform, just write a check, write a check, write a check. And same thing in Minneapolis. Even well before um, the death of George Floyd, Minneapolis had a long history of police abuse, a long history of, of settlements, and over a 25 or 30 year period, despite you know all the checks that had been written, um, it had not brought about change. And so it's almost like a market mechanism, this belief that you know you you cause enough abuse, you write enough checks, you know, the magic of the marketplace of, of it costing you whatever it is will lead to bring about political reform. It hasn't worked as a strategy. That whole idea of just trying to bankrupt cities um, if they abuse civil rights of people of color, I think has largely failed as a as a reform strategy. But again, going back to the street level, back to where the rubber meets the road, where we ha- we encounter reality. In this nation, black people are three times more likely to be killed by police than white people and 1.3 times more likely to be unarmed when killed by the police. Those are the statistics, and they're pretty damning. They are damning, and in Minneapolis... Um, a um, police are six times more likely to use force against a person of color than a white Caucasian. Unfortunately, the statistics that you quote, the statistics that I quote, um, haven't changed in the last year. And so if we're asking what has changed as a result of George Floyd's uh, death, it's hard to point to very much in terms of, let us say, real structural change or real public policy change. I think there are a few more people who are aware of the problem, um, but at the end of the day, awareness versus the political will and the actual transformation of public policy are very different issues. And that brings us back to my opening comment is that a window opened with George Floyd's death, an unfortunate window. And I worry that that window um, is closing rapidly. I, I have a sense that when Derek Chauvin is sentenced next month in June, and the judge has already said that there's enough aggravating factors to give him more than the minimum um, um, sentence for, you know, for the crime. Let's say he gets 25 years in jail. There'll be lots of people who will say the system worked. He, a bad officer was found guilty. Uh, he was given a severe punishment. We don't need to do anything else. And that's what I worry we're going to be at. Well, just in closing, one of the extraordinary phenomena is it happening now is that a former president, Donald Trump, has inordinate influence. No other former president has had the influence that he has. Jimmy Carter went off and built homes for Habitat for Humanity. George W. Bush went off and painted pictures of little dogs. This guy controls the GOP. Remember... We're not going to hear the answer to that question, unfortunately, but you've been listening to Background Briefing with Ian Masters on WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay tuned after NPR headlines. We're going to play today's Tom Hartman show live at noon because Janet is out today, but she will be back next Wednesday. She'll also be in for a great show tomorrow at, with to, hosted with, uh, with Shelly, her co-host. So this is WMNF Tampa. Please stay tuned for Tom Hartman coming up after NPR headlines on WMNF Tampa.